John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello again, John. Hi, Todd. How are you today? Well, doing just fine. And once again, it's just the two of us. Uh, Greg is not here, which is uh, kind of unfortunate because uh, today we're going to talk about something that's of intense interest to me. Uh, Greg had spoken earlier to us about how training accidents are you know, on the rise. And I think he gave a number like 135 of them in the past year. So I did uh, what I sometimes do. I went to the NTSB site, went to their database of accidents and just searched for anything that had training in any of the narrative uh, sections. And I came across one that was fairly recent, October of 2022. And it caught my eye because this was an accident that was non-fatal. Fortunately, no one got killed or seriously injured. Involved someone who was on a 250 nautical mile flight for his IFR training. And this is one of the requirements one has to go through in order to get an IFR uh, certification, something I just finished doing a couple of weeks ago. So I looked at this and I thought, you know, within about 20 seconds, there's something squirrely about this because first of all, this was done at night. And certainly you can do this at night, but why would you do a 250 nautical mile IFR training flight at night when you are learning how to be an IFR pilot. And then other things about this started to not make a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, one of them being that one of the places this person was gonna stop at night as part of uh, his IFR re requirement was Louisville, Kentucky. And I thought, I don't know much about Louisville, Kentucky, but I do know this. UPS has a whole lot of very heavy aircraft going in and out of there at night because of their cargo hub they have there. And with a 250 nautical mile um, IFR flight for your requirement. One of the things you have to do is do an instrument approach, three different instrument approaches. And really, you're flying a 172 into Louisville at night with a bunch of heavy aircraft around you, and you want to shoot an approach with aircraft that are going a whole lot faster than the Cessna 172. So uh, this was a uh, target-rich environment for lessons learned. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up to us, because uh, I have not insights into uh, this particular pilot, but I have insights into what it takes to put yourself in a position to do this kind of flight. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'd like to uh, have you, John, ask me some questions about this because I'm a little bit too close to this to be objective. 
I, I believe that. I believe that they haven't just come off this uh, flying just a few weeks ago yourself. But as soon as I saw it, when you sent it to me, the first couple of sentences, I said, okay, I see where this is going. Because we had talked about what you had just accomplished in, in your flying, just to, like I said, a few weeks ago. So the first thing is, would you ever schedule five or six stops the way they did well, for cross-country? Never mind at night, but just in general. Well, they, what they didn't schedule the five or six stops. What happened was um, they scheduled to go to this first stop and and refuel the aircraft. And the fueling station, the fueling uh, unit there, wasn't taking the credit card. So they couldn't fill up then. And again, this goes back to flying at night. They took off, I don't know, like 8 o'clock at night. This was probably well after the FBO was closed. So uh, were they banking on the, the fuel being there for them? Well, obviously it, it wasn't there. So their first change of plan was to do a short hop to another air, airport and fuel up, which they were able to do. And they got the IFR clearance to go a little bit differently from before, which is okay. Then they get up in the air and they find out that they can't do the instrument approach at, at uh, Louisville. And again, you have multiple change of, of flights of the flight plan rather, during this 250 nautical mile um, requirement. Now they did do a pre-flight. He and his instructor did sit down, plan this out ahead of time. And here's where I'm, I have to mention. The student was 47 years old. The instructor who was not just a CFI, but a CFII, someone who can instruct someone on their way to their instrument ticket. She was only 20 years old. So I'm sure this person was highly qualified, highly motivated, and a cut above being age 20 and already a CFII. But you got to think, you know, they're coming at life from two different directions. Um, this, this student, who's 47 years old, was by their own admission in the factual report, was doing this at night because he was trying to do both his 250 nautical mile requirement and his night currency at the same time. And like I was saying to you, I was sending you an email, I read that, that piece and you know, the song from Johnny Cash started playing in my head, a song called One Piece at a Time. And I don't know if uh, you're out there familiar with this, but this is one of my favorite Johnny Cash songs. It was about a person who worked on an assembly line for Cadillacs, didn't make enough money to buy a Cadillac normally, but he had an idea. He had a dream. He would sneak out one piece of a Cadillac of the at a time from the assembly line and piece it together off-site somewhere. So when it comes to learning how to fly and getting your certification, I'm of a Johnny Cash mentality when it comes to things. If I want to get night currency, I'll get night currency. If I need to do my 250 nautical mile requirement, I'll do the requirement. I am not the kind of person who tries to stack several things at once into a flight outside of, you know, unless it's required by the syllabus or required by uh, that particular um, certification. I'm not going to put an extra burden on myself. And certainly, um, the biggest extra burden, I think, is flying at night, not just because they're flying toward the end of their normal day and because you might be more tired than usual, also because if you're, if you're re relying on having services available at some airport, it's more likely than not they're not going to be open if you're landing at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. So that just increases the risk that if anything goes wrong, you'll end up having problems. And by the way, even though it wasn't done in the accident report or in the factory report, 
I did a little math problem. I thought, all right, you have to fly at least 250 nautical miles. Given the changed um, flight plan they had, if they had successfully completed this, going to not one, but two refuelings and adding a couple of extra airports along the way, if they did just a straight line flight between these airports, didn't do any flying around for the instrument approaches, just go straight line from airport to airport. Had they been successful, it would have been 443 nautical miles they would have had to traverse to do this 250 nautical mile requirement. And when you wow. add in the instrument approaches, it would have been twice the distance of what was required. And I don't know about you, but you know, two, I, I flew about 280, 300 nautical miles by the end of mine. It was a good day of flying. It was a semi-exhausting day of flying. And it would have been more um, challenging had I done this at night. Certainly more challenging if I had flown an hour or two more than I planned. Yeah, fatigue is never never mentioned. But at least 47 years old, you know, she she might be able to get away with that being 20. But at his age, that's an issue. You know, and it's, it started off on the wrong foot with the first landing with the fuel. It's not like he picked that up in the middle. The right. very first he had the problem with the not getting enough fuel. Fortunately, there was an airport that was only a few miles away. So off, they can take another takeoff and go that short distance. I'm sure they had more than enough fuel for that. And and, and then tank up to go to Cleveland. All right, another not so busy airport, right? And the next stop was going to be Cleveland. And then Louisville. And then Bowling Green. Uh, well, interesting. Actually, it wasn't Cleveland, it was Cincinnati, but same difference. It's like you're going to two busy airports at night on a night cross country when you're trying to do certification. By the way, when I said earlier, I was not being very objective. One of the things I neglected to talk about in the preamble was what was the actual event that caused the accident? At the second stop for fuel, this was an airport that was untowered. And they were taxiing off the main runway and the taxiway lights gave out. So there was no taxiway lights available. And there were bright lights in the distance at a hangar or whatever that sort of gave him night blindness and whatnot. And he taxied off the side of the taxiway and into a ditch. Seriously damaged the aircraft. Didn't destroy the aircraft. I believe the aircraft is flying again. But that was the gist of the accident. Fairly straightforward, plain vanilla sort of taxing off the taxiway at low speed, you damage landing gear and damage other parts of the aircraft. But like with every accident, it's not what happened at the end. You can't just say, well, the accident was caused by taxiing off the taxiway into a ditch. Why were they taxiing off the taxiway into a ditch? What were the circumstances? Okay, why were those circumstances happening? Given the context of this flight, why was it even necessary to have this uh, stop at this airport, which was unplanned? Didn't say anything in the factory report or the final report, but I'm, it's implying that this was an unfamiliar airport to both the instructor and the student. And uh, to the credit of the pilot, I will give the credit uh, pilot this much credit. He had some self-reflection in this factual report, which is why you should uh, go to the public docket, dockets of these accidents. It wasn't in the final report but it wasn't a public docket. He sort of admitted that there are some things he could have done better, things he could have done differently. He admitted that the flight instructor was uh, sitting fairly forward in the seat. So his vision was somewhat obstructed. 
He could have had the flight instructor help him uh, visualize what was going on. He could have upgraded his foreflight to have an option where it can show the icon of the aircraft on the map of the airport. But again, the biggest thing is, why the heck are we flying at night on a 250-mile uh, event like this? And why didn't you and the instructor decide, you know what? Things aren't working out for us today. The right. gods of flight are not in our favor. Let's pack it in and do this again another day. Well, you know, after they finally got fuel, the first airport, no fuel. Second airport, they got fuel. They went to Cleveland, uneventful. They took off out of Cleveland. They didn't get fuel in Cleveland. They took off out of Cleveland, ran into headwinds, and calculated they needed to make an unscheduled fuel stop. Now, right there tells me they didn't revisit their planning in Cleveland. I mean, you're making these multiple stops. He, that statement, the pilot himself made that statement, tells me that they didn't consider anything current in their route. Remember, you've got to, when you're doing your planning, you've got to take your weather here, your weather where you're going, and everything in between. And when he made those stops, that was the second stop, a third landing in Cleveland. And he should have recalculated while they were there recalculate your fuel and, and the weather conditions that you're going to be faced with. And this was a recent air, uh, accident, as you mentioned. I mean, you can get the weather on your phone. This is October 2022. He admitted in the factual statement that he had four flight with him. I have four flight. In fact, I have the cheapest uh, subscription for four flight. And I can get all kinds of information live and in living color with my four flight, especially if I'm on the ground and not trying to fly the airplane at the same time. I can take my time to go through and get, you know, a self-weather briefing, figure out if there are any pie reps, I figure out what the winds aloft are, and do all sorts of flight planning. And it even gives you some advice. It's like, hey, you're flying from here to here. Here's the weather. Here's the estimated time and route. Here's the headwinds or the tailwinds you'll be facing. There was ample information available, assuming he had um uh, internet connection or, or, or telephone connection or Wi-Fi connection. And he's flying in the Midwest of the U.S. It's a small airport. I'm assuming he had ability to get online and get information. But even if he didn't have the ability, there was no excuse to put himself and the instructor in a situation where they're lacking information. If nothing else, you can call air traffic control for, for help or advice for the weather or whatever. Well, actually, it was Cleveland that he took off out of, and it was the air traffic controller that cautioned him about the wind, uh, winds aloft. So maybe that controller was a pilot and was saying to himself, you know, this guy is, doesn't, I hope this guy knows what he's getting himself into. You know, I have, a, I have several friends that are air traffic controllers that fly all the time, and uh, they try to be very, very helpful to the people that they're handling. So... And then they, they do yeoman's duty for us, all of us. And, the, fly commercially and, fly. and the person who's trying to get his instrument rating, he had several hundred hours of, of total experience, which means he's not an inexperienced pilot. But uh, speaking personally, you know, speaking uh, from the position of someone who had a 34-year gap between the last time I was a pilot in command of anything and the first time I was in 2021 when I restarted at flying again. 
You can have hundreds of hours of training, but how recent is that training? The factual report said that in the previous 30 days, he had zero hours of flying. So even if his several hundred hours had happened before that 30-day period in a big chunk of time, the fact is this person has not flown in 30 days, and their first flight over 30 days is a 250-mile cross-country instrument uh, requirement and doing it at night. You know, that in itself, if I were a you know, gray-headed uh, CFI, even if I were my first day as a CFI, I've had enough life experience to say, you know what? This probably isn't wise. We're not going to do it. This 20-year-old, again, I have nothing negative to say about this person's experience. They clearly satisfied the FA requirements to be a, a CFII. But just as clearly, clearly, they're 20 years old. And it's a 47-year-old person who they're with. And they know they're the instructor, that they're the, they, the other person is a student. But you have to wonder, what are the dynamics, the power dynamics between these two people? Uh, during the planning phase, during the flying phase, where either one of them at, at any time could have said, you know what, this isn't going to happen. This isn't working. We're turning around right now. Neither one of them did until they went off the side of the taxiway. Yes, it's, unfo it's unfortunate that what happened, it's very fortunate that neither one of them got hurt. And but it's fortunate that, that uh, we, we have this much information from the pilot. We get some insight into the state of mind of the pilot, and we have an ability to, you know, share those lessons with our audience and with anyone else who's listening. And again, like I said before, I'm not objective about this because I'm going through this process, and I'm constantly going through decisions like this. In fact, a few hours ago, I decided not to fly tomorrow. Uh, I was going to do some solo work because uh, you know, there were things that were lining up in in my non-flying life where it's like, yes, I can do that, but I'm going to be having like a two, two and a half week break after that. So if I were flying today and then flying with my instructor later in the week where I can, you know, compare notes with what I did on solo, that might be instructive on several levels. If it was just me flying alone and not being with the instructor for another two, three weeks. It's probably worth my while to wait a couple of weeks, do my first flight with the instructor so that uh, you know we can go over things I might have gotten rusty on and then go back to doing solo. So again, this kind of decision-making can happen days or even weeks ahead of time. And this person had at least a month of time to think this through before he made the series of decisions that he did. Well, I think that had a big effect on his decision to try to do this all in one bite because he hadn't flown in a month he probably had a desire to get back on track and catch up. So maybe he had planned on doing his cross country during that month and life got in the way and he couldn't. And now he's trying to get back in the groove again and rushing it is not the way to do it. Right? He planned this out, obviously, but he didn't, plan. you know, every time you get on the ground, you should take a look at the next piece of flight. You don't have to go through the whole process, but take a look to make sure that the assumptions you made when you started the flight are still valid. You know, mainly the weather is probably the biggest one. But other events, like you said, notums, anything, you need to refresh to make sure that nothing has changed. So, well, it's a good, this is a good event because nobody got hurt. We bent some metal, which can all be fixed. 
and I hope he had renter's insurance. Avemco is uh, in the business of selling rental insurance. It's reasonable. So don't take, don't take chances. You see how easy this could happen. So don't take chances with your financial future. And with that, Todd, I think we've talked about forever on, uh, on our last words. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, yes, it's uh, well, the biggest word I'd like to add is uh, sometimes you have to step back and be objective about what you're doing. Just like I have to step back and be objective about reading this report. In fact, I'm going to read through the data again because in my uh, you know zeal to uh, make points about, my God, why did they do this? I'm going to sit back and reflect, all right, what can I learn from this now that I'm a bit more calm about this? So my last word, well, let's, let's do a, a switcheroo. I'll do the last word this time. For those of you who are flying, especially those of you who are trying to work on your next certification, uh, keep in mind that your flying career may go on for decades. You don't have to do it all at once. And in my opinion, if you have several things to do, make a point to do them one piece at a time. Okay, very good. And I'll just close with everybody. Please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.